Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Well, shalom, everyone. I want to thank everyone for coming out tonight to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I am the author of the commentary, and I'll be the teacher throughout the entire course. Let's open with a word of prayer, a little bit of liturgy, and then we'll get started into the study, okay? Let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we love you tonight, and we say thank you for sending your Son into our midst. Thank you for sending Yeshua to die for us. Thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Thank you for preserving the words of the text for us to dwell upon. Father, we thank you for our communities. We thank you for our families. We thank you for the um, uh, for the miracles that you are working in our midst. We bless you for all these good things. We ask, Father, that you will continue to raise us up as a voice in this evil generation, in these last dark days. We ask that you will cause us to be a light to those around us, that you will give us a voice of good news to those who don't yet know the truth, that in Jesus alone there is true forgiveness, there is wholeness, there is healing, there is salvation. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided the way back to you through your Son. Thank you that you are drawing us close to you through the medium of Torah study. Thank you, Lord, for working in and through us to accomplish your goodwill. For it is indeed our desire to be pleasing to you, draws close to you. Bless you, Father, for all these good things. Continue to protect us and to um, challenge us for we indeed need your assistance. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place to open the text to our eyes. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'Shem Yeshua M'Shechenu. Amen. Okay, let's begin with a little bit of liturgy. I just want to be brief in my liturgy today, tonight. Um, well, hang on real quick. Let me date stamp the recording. Um, on my side of the world here in Korea, it is Wednesday, November 4th, 2015. It's likely that where you are, if you're either in the live study or if you're listening to this after the fact, if you're in the live study, it's probably Tuesday night, but uh, I'm a day ahead of most of you. Uh, my liturgy is going to be brief because I've got a lot to talk about tonight, so let's just uh, read a little bit of liturgy from the Hebrew, a little bit of liturgy from the Greek, and then I'll just go forward. Um... For the Hebrew selection, I'm just going to read the standard blessing 
of the Torah out of the Art Scroll Siddur, the Sephardic edition, page 19 for the English and page 18 for the Hebrew. I'll just read uh, the one paragraph, okay? The uh, English reads, Blessed are you, Hashem our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Hashem our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and in the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Hashem, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Here's the Hebrew. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Kidshanu B'Mitzotav, V'Tzivanu La'asuk B'Divrei Torah, Ba'arev Na Adonai Eloheinu, Et Divrei Torah Befinu Ufiot Ancha Be'i Yisrael, V'Nihye Anachnu, V'Tzetzeinu, V'Tzetzeinu, V'Tzetzei Amcha Be'i Yisrael, Kulanu yodeh shmecha velomdei toratecha lishma. Baruchata Adonai Hamla made Torah la'amo Yisrael. Okay, that's the liturgy from the Hebrew. Let me turn over to the Greek scriptures. I'm going to read the same um, passage that I read last week. Uh, Galatians chapter 2 verse 16. Uh, this time I'll go ahead and read the English first, since you know in advance what I'm going to read. Uh, this is ESV. It reads, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. The Greek reads, a dotes de hati u decaiutai anthropos ex ergo namu, ian me dia pistios, Christu Jesu, kai hemes ais Christon Jesu, epistusimen, hina decaiothomen ek pistios Christu, kai uk ex ergo namu, hati ex ergo namu u decaiothesitai. Pasa Sarks. And that's our liturgy for tonight. Let's um, let's pick up just briefly, I uh, back up just a bit and let you know where we've been, um, what we've been talking about. If you're looking at the screen right now, you'll see I'm stopped on question number six, which says, Paul says we're not saved by works of the law. Please explain. So we're going to talk about question number six today, but just to let you know where we've been going, um, we left off last week with question five. Paul says in Romans 6.14 that we're not under the law, but under grace, and then we took a bite out of question number six. And remember, we're still in the preface. We're still in the preface. The preface is these ten common questions regarding Torah observance among Christians among Gentile Christians, basically. And this preface section to my Galatians commentary is really designed to whet the appetite of those who would approach the book of Galatians from a practical point of view. And when I say whet our appetite, um, 
it's no secret that uh, among traditional Christian views of Galatians and Torah in particular, the standard Christian view or stance on Torah is that Torah has been relaxed in Jesus. It has been um, uh, superseded by the law of Christ. Uh, it has Torah itself has been nullified by the fulfillment of Christ, um, a la Matthew chapter 5, things like that. So it's no secret among standard Christian theologians that reading through the book of Galatians appears to be Paul's definitive stance against returning to any sort of meritorious system whereby we keep law for the purpose of salvation. Indeed, from through the, through the traditional Christian lens, also known as the Lutheran view of Paul, through the traditional Christian lens, Paul's letter to Galatians is essentially his, um, his uh, Paul's warning against returning to any sort of Torah obedience for, for believers at all. And I believe this would include uh, for Jewish Christians. At, uh, particularly, we know it's, it's um, Paul warning Gentile Christians away from trying to keep Torah or uh, things like that. But I think it also carries over into Paul warning Jewish Christians that they don't need to keep the law anymore. So that, that's all the traditional view. For those of you who are, um, who are familiar with the Messianic Jewish view or are um, members of a Messianic Jewish community, a congregation that's Torah positive, something to that effect, a, a member of what you might call a Torah community, whatever labels you want to give yourself Messianic, if you just say you're Messianic, and you're, you're in a Christian setting, and you say, hey, I'm Messianic, that usually indicates that you have some sort of positive affiliation with the Torah, meaning you have returned, you have rejected the traditional Christian um, view of Torah being relaxed, and you have embraced a what you call a Messianic view of Torah, meaning that you are embracing the Sabbaths, you are uh, embracing the dietary laws, you are embracing circumcision, you are embracing the feast days, you are embracing wearing tzitzit, uh, uh, putting mezuzah on your door. In a word, you're returning to Torah obedience as best as you feel the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, is guiding you and leading you. Indeed, an entire paradigm shift usually has taken place in your life if you call yourself Messianic. And so, what ends up happening if you are messianic you have decidedly left the traditional camp of traditional christianity although not leaving uh, faith in christ you simply have left the traditional reading of paul and the traditional reading of the book of galatians and you have moved over into a category that is labeled messianic thus torah respectful thus Torah obedient, etc., etc. So, when you read the book of Galatians, you don't see Paul saying that the, that, the law, that the law is no longer relevant. You don't see Jesus fulfilling the law in a way that is equated with uh, relaxing the law. Instead, you see Jesus' fulfillment of the law in Matthew chapter 5 as a demonstration of how to walk out Torah in its fullness and its fullest intended meaning. You see the word fulfill there as Jesus' demonstration of a perfect example of keeping the law, an example that we can follow if we are led by the Spirit. Also, when you read through Paul's writings, particularly Galatians, as we're going to be studying more closely, you don't see Paul 
discouraging Gentile Christians from keeping Torah. You see Paul discouraging his readers from something else. And that's what we're going to begin to focus on more sharply, uh, particularly in this answer to number six of my commentary. What we have come to discover as we work with our well-meaning Christian friends and family and our, uh, our pastors and those whom we still deem um, genuine Christians, those with whom we have the utmost respect, uh, our, and when I say our, I'm speaking as a messianic, just like most of you who are listening to this commentary, um, what we consider a, a marked point of difference, a sharp disagreement with them, is in our understanding of Paul's use of certain phrases under the law and works of law. Again, traditional Christianity has the phrase under the law, which is found quite often in Paul's writings. Traditional Christianity interprets the phrase under the law essentially as under obedience to Torah commands, under obedience to the law as a way of life. And so when Paul says we are not under the law, quote unquote, for instance, Romans 6, 14, we know that Paul is, we know from context that Paul is speaking negatively of this term, works of the law. Whatever it is, it is diametrically, diametrically opposed to the grace of Christ, to the, to the grace of God, because he says we're not under the law, but under grace. And there is a dichotomy in the text. Works of law is on one, I'm sorry, under the law is on one side, and grace of God or grace of Christ is on the other side. And Paul is definitely coming down on the side of grace. Therefore, under the law is something that we don't want to agree with. Whatever it under the law is, regardless of how we interpret it, we must agree with the context that it is definitely something we want to avoid. It is something that's negative. It is a pejorative position. And it's something that Paul is trying to explain to his readers that you don't want to be. It's a position you don't want to be in, whatever under the law is. So the point of difference with traditional Christianity, we Messianics, our position is that under the law does not mean Torah obedience. Under the law does not mean under Torah governance, under obedience to law. Because then, if that were true, it would be pitting genuine Torah obedience with grace. It would be pitting God-given standards of obedience with God-given expectation of grace or in other words, it would be pitting God's law against God's grace, a position that we Messianics find untenable, untenable, not, not workable, not very highly unlikely, because essentially it pits the entire Old Testament against the entire New Testament, uh, to use simplified terms, to use the standard traditional Christian viewpoint of things. And we Messianics simply find that an unreadable position an unworkable position, because I don't find a dichotomy between God's law and God's grace. I don't find God uprooting his very law for the purpose of se uh, sending his son into the world, something to that effect. Instead, it's more likely that under law means under condemnation to the law. It's shorthand. Under the condemnation of the law. Under the condemnation of the law reserved for unrepentant sinners under the condemnation of the law, under the penalties of the law that are spelled out for um, high-handed sinners, for uh, cold-hearted, uh, unregenerate 
mankind. And if read in that definition, if we if we define under the law as Paul's teaching that we are not under condemnation of the law, we are not under the punishment of the law, things which would be defined by Paul as bad, right? The punishment of the law is bad. The condemnation of the law is a position you do not want to find yourself in. If we instead read Paul's phrase under the law as such, then we can begin to agree that in Christ, in the grace of Christ, we have been set free from the condemnation of the law because we are not unrepentant sinners. We have taken on the position of Christ forensically. Therefore, the merit of Christ, the merit of Messiah, has been conferred to our account, and therefore we are righteous, and therefore we are not, as Paul reiterates in um, Romans chapter 8, the first few verses, we are not under the condemnation of law because we do not walk according to the flesh. We do not, do not walk according to the old nature. We do not, do we, <laughs> we do not live our lives in accordance with the old man. We live our lives in step according to the Spirit. So, that's a better way to understand under the law. And right in line with under the law, as we move in now from question five into question six, Paul says we're not saved by works of the law. Now, works of the law in traditional Christianity is typically the same thing as under the law. In other words, traditional Christianity interprets the phrase works of the law in Paul as works done in obedience to the law. In other words, the works are being described by traditional Christianity, and supposedly by Paul, are the Sabbath keeping, the dietary keeping, the dietary issues of Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, the keeping of kosher, in a word. The keeping of the festivals are interpreted by traditional Christianity as works of the law. The, um, the festivals are traditional uh, are uh, interpreted as keeping of the works of the law. So all of these things, these works, so to say, are works of the law according to traditional Christianity. And again, we're going to have to work from context. Context is king. Context is king. We must, must, must always rely on context. So let me go ahead and read um, question number six and the answer. I'm going to read it in its entirety in the commentary, and then I'll go back and explain my answer. And I think we're only going to have time to deal with question number six tonight. I don't think we'll have time to move into question seven. So, here we go. Question. Paul says we're not saved by works of the law. Please explain. Answer. This will easily be the longest answer of the set because it will develop one of the core hermeneutic keys to historically understanding Paul's letters. Works of the law, quote-unquote, which the Greek is ergonamu, is one of the most challenging statements of Paul when read outside of the context of Paul's first-century Jewish worldview. On the one hand, mere mechanical law-keeping will never save anyone, nor will sincere law-keeping for that matter. The Torah was not given of God to provide salvation of the soul. However, it is a wonderful sanctification tool when used by the Holy Spirit, and it is a tool used to highlight and convict both regenerate and unregenerate men of sin. So on the theological level, it is true that keeping the law does not save us. In fact, 
keeping the Torah, has never saved anyone. However, the standard Christian theological discussions on law versus grace, quote-unquote, often fail to grasp Paul's 2,000-year-old historical and sociological discussions about group membership and what this meant to many first-century Jews. In Paul's day, Israel sincerely, albeit incorrectly, believed that group affiliation is what mattered most in terms of corporate salvation, both in this life and in the life to come after one died. Belonging to, that is, getting in and staying in, the family clan of Israel was the most important detail an individual person could focus on. Jews, both then and now, referred to the social policies that govern Jewish life as halacha, which is a Hebrew word referring to, quote-unquote, the way in which to individually or corporately walk out Torah in a practical manner, end quote. The Torah has built-in God-given halakha, but most often it was the additional responsibility of Jewish leaders to determine specific group policy, etc., where the Torah was silent in some manners. In their segregated way of thinking, all of covenant Israel was comprised of Jewish people only, viz. Everyone in Israel was a Jew. If a non-Jew wanted to attain corporate salvation, both now and after they died, that person needed to legally convert to become a Jew first and thus join Jewish Israel. Once they were legally recognized as Jewish, their place in the physical covenant was ostensibly maintained by keeping the Torah. This group membership-imposed Torah observance concept is coined covenantal gnomism. Thus, Paul's term works of the law is actually a sociological and technical phrase used to describe the historic Jewish-only policy that forbade Jewish, I'm sorry, that forbade Gentiles from joining Israel without going through a man-made conversion policy to become a Jew. In short, this was an ancient way of referring to Jewish identity leading to covenant faithfulness. For Jews in the first century, God was offering a simple package deal equation, which was Jewish Israel plus Torah-keeping equals corporate salvation, both in this life and in the life to come. Obviously, by now, most Christians understand that this historic, theological, Jewish-only policy is at odds with the genuine gospel of God through His chosen Messiah, Yeshua, a gospel taught from Genesis to Revelation. Using this more historically accurate way of interpreting Paul's writings in the New Testament, we understand Paul to be opposing this first-century inaccurate theological policy by saying to both Jews and Gentiles, quote, no one gets into Israel, that is, is saved. No one is saved merely by being or becoming Jewish and then stays in Israel by keeping Torah, end quote. How do we know this to be the proper interpretation of Paul's writings? If we study the New Testament as an historical document alongside the other extant writings, that have survived from the first century Judaisms, i.e. the rabbinic commentaries, the Talmud, the mission of the Gemara, 
uh, the sea freight, things like that. If we study our New Testament alongside these other um, ancient Jewish documents in context, as well as corroborate the theology of the Old Testament in proper context, which would include Torah obedience, then we begin to get a more accurate picture of the pattern of theology of the first century Jewish people. And what we discover is that the Jewish concept of individual-slash-group salvation cannot be easily caricatured by simplistic merit theology, the way historic Christianity has traditionally characterized Jewish devotion to Torah. Okay, that is the question and the answer read more or less verbatim from my commentary. Now, let me uh, scroll back up into the question a bit for those of you who are in the live class here, and let me begin to, begin to explain my answer using just kind of general terms in case the answer wasn't self-explanatory enough. Basically, traditional Christianity for the last 2,000 years or so has been labeled by scholars, by people in Pauline studies, it's been labeled either the traditional view or the Lutheran view after Luther, after Martin Luther, since he is the champion and founder, I guess, of the uh, Protestant movement. And the Protestant voice is the position that I'm um, primarily working from, although the Catholic voice would agree when it comes to Pauline studies um, that... Uh, the, the Torah has been relaxed in Jesus. So, essentially, the traditional view of, of the first century Jews, the, the view that traditional Christianity takes away when they read Paul's letters, when they read through the book of Galatians, they essentially interpret Paul as arguing against a meritorious keeping of Torah. In other words, a works-based religion where the definition of works is keeping Torah for the purpose of, of bringing individual salvation to a person. So we have what I'm calling a caricature of Judaism of the first century. And this caricature of the first century Judaism is a caricature that's, that defines devotion to Torah in terms of merit theology. In other words, the first century Jew, in the position of the traditional, the traditional view, has the first century Jew keeping Torah for the purpose of personal salvation. That view has manifold problems, not least of which is that the Torah text does not simplistically describe or um, paint Torah obedience in those simplistic terms. Now, many are going to push back against this and say, well, it doesn't matter if God never defined Torah, uh, ne never presents Torah in those simplistic uh, views or those simplistic terms. It's true that there was a problem with the way that Jews of the first century interacted with Torah. In other words, when we read through the New Testament, through the Gospels, it's quite evident that Jesus has a problem with the Torah obedience of the Pharisees. And most Christians are going to um, interpret the, the 
uh, wrestling of Jesus and the Pharisees in light of Jesus saying, well, you guys are legalistic. You're keeping the law because you think it'll save you. And I'm here to tell you that only faith in myself, this is, I'm speaking in the words of Yeshua, I'm here to tell you that only faith in me will save you. You don't have to place your faith in your obedience to Torah, your scrupulous um, keeping of the minutiae of Torah commands as if somehow that will earn you merit before God. And so that forms the basis for the traditional reading of Paul because Paul is going to stand on the words of Jesus and to that view, to that, to that degree that Paul stands on the merit of Jesus, that Paul stands on the words and authority of Yeshua, I'm going to strongly agree with the traditional position. Yes, that's the best way to read Paul in that regard. However, um, what ends up happening is that as we read through Paul, we find what are apparently contradictions in Paul's views of the law. For instance, repeatedly throughout the book of Romans, we find Paul giving high regards, high praise for Torah. Um, for instance, just pulling out of the top of my head without actually turning to the text, Paul says in Galatians, I'm sorry, Paul says in Romans 3 that, uh, I'm sorry, in, yes, in latter half, the very end of uh, Romans chapter 3, around verse 29, 30, 31, or something like that, Paul says that, that faith upholds the Torah. Faith doesn't nullify Torah. Um, he goes on to talk about, well, I'm sorry, earlier on in Romans, around chapter 1, later, er, uh, the latter half of chapter 1, and moving into chapter 2, Paul talks about how that it's not the hearers of the law who are justified, but it's the doers of the law, the doers of the Torah. Um, Paul says that circumcision is a value if you are obedient to Torah, it is a value if you keep Torah. That's around the latter half of Romans 2. Um, uh, where else do we have Paul talking, saying good things about Torah? In Romans chapter 7, I believe, uh, somewhere around the first, within the first 10 verses, we have Paul saying that, um, that he would not have known what sin was except for the law. Also that the law is, the, the law is holy, righteous, and good. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Uh, in the latter half of chapter 7, towards the end of the chapter, we have Paul saying that um, with his he concurs with the law of God in the inward self, in his inner mind. With his mind, he agrees that the law of God is good. Um, and uh, in Romans chapter 8, uh, within the first, say, 10 to 15 verses, we have Paul saying that the um, those who live according to the flesh cannot please God. Those uh, They can't keep Torah. Indeed, it's impossible to be obedient to Torah if you're living according to the flesh. So we have Paul describing Torah in praiseworthy statements. And yet we get to Galatians and we have Paul seemingly tearing down the Torah, seemingly discouraging Torah obedience, seemingly uh, disparaging, uh, I'm sorry, seemingly um, uh, discounting the, the life of Torah, the place of Torah in the life of a believer. Also, for those of you who are careful Bereans, those of you who are noble students of the Scripture, when you read through the book of Acts, you recall that there were in, for instance, say, I want to say Acts 21, around verse 20, 25, somewhere in that neighborhood, we have 
Um, Paul returning to Jerusalem, he is with some Gentiles, some Greeks. He's going into the temple, and he's met by uh, James and some of the other um, pillars of the Jerusalem um, community, and they uh, encourage Paul. They, they, they first they tell Paul how how many thousands of Jews there are who believe in Yeshua, and they are all zealous for the Torah. That's in Acts 21. And then James uh, instructs Paul and those men that were with him to complete the vow that they have undertaken, which is likely a Nazarite vow. Um, have themselves purified, have their uh, heads shaven, uh, present their sacrifice in the, in the uh, temple there, and to demonstrate and prove that the rumors that Paul is no longer keeping the Torah are the rumors that Paul is telling people to stop circumcising their sons, to stop being obedient to Torah. This rumor can be dispelled by the actions that Paul and these men are going to embark on. So the book of Acts, at least right there in 21, seems to have Paul not discouraging Torah obedience, not um, uprooting Torah in the life of a believer, but instead, instead establishing Torah, something he's going to write in Romans chapter 3, around verse 28, 29, 31, something like that, Paul is not uprooting Torah, he's establishing Torah. And then Paul goes on to confess later on in the, uh, as you continue to read through the latter half of the book of Acts, you know that essentially it's Paul's arrest and his arraignment before Felix and ultimately before you know the, the, the tribunal that he's that Paul is being brought before, Paul confesses a few times, multiple times, that he um, that that he does that he's not a breaker of Torah. He doesn't he doesn't violate Torah, but instead he is a keeper of Torah. So, essentially, the traditional view of Paul in Galatians that Paul is uprooting Torah, that Paul is discouraging Torah for Gentiles and Jews in Messiah is a position that's unworkable for Messianics for many of those views, least of which is that Paul himself was Torah-obedient his entire life. Why would Paul tell Gentiles to stop keeping Torah when Paul himself kept Torah his entire life, his entire life by his own admission? So as we look at this phrase, works of the law, and we begin to explain it, basically what I'm trying to convey to those who read this commentary, is that there are two opposing views when it comes to Paul. The traditional view on one hand, which essentially is the what we call the Lutheran view, the traditional view, the standard Christian view of Paul, sees Paul as making a break from Torah obedience specifically for Gentiles, but likely for Jews as well. So the traditional view is, on the one hand, Paul breaks with Torah, says that the Torah has been fulfilled, says that the Torah has been relaxed, says that the Torah has been done away with, and that the and that the Judaisms of Paul's day were misusing the Torah so as to keep it in order to be saved. In other words, Paul, the traditional view has Paul arguing against a meritorious use of the law, meaning merit theology, and then as we begin to compare and contrast the traditional view with what others today are calling the new perspective on Paul or new 
Pauline thought or new authorship of Paul. Um, the, in other words, the new reading of Paul or the more accurate reading of Paul. This new view, this different view of Paul, has Paul not seeing Torah obedience in his day as a means of gaining salvation. Instead, this new view of Paul has Paul seeing the Torah obedience of his day as obedience to the covenant, faithfulness to the covenant. In other words, this fancy phrase that I keep using in my writings, covenantal gnomism. Basically, covenantal gnomism is a term that was, um, I believe it was coined by E.P. Sanders in the 70s in his seminal work, uh, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, or Paul and Law. I can't remember the, the exact name of the... Uh, of the work. We'll get to it in this commentary, by the way, but that's not important for the moment. Basically, the new view of Paul has gone back through the rabbinic writings and tried to glean a better understanding of the pattern of religion in the first century. In other words, we know that law is important in the first century. That is an indisputable um, feature of the New Testament. It's a it's it's essentially a fact that is agreed upon across the board, whether in traditional Christian camps or in the new perspectivism camp. Um, and I even though I don't fully espouse to everything that the new perspective teaches, if you do a Google search for new perspective Paul or NPP, then you're gonna find a, a series, a system of thought that is being championed today. It's it's about 30 years old now, I'd say. So it's new in regards to Lutheran Paul, and that's why it's probably given the label New Perspective Paul, NPP. I don't espouse to everything that Sanders and Carson and Wright and Dunn, um, these well, well-founded, well-meaning authors, most of them Christian, all of them Christian, I believe, um, I don't espouse everything they teach in the new perspective on Paul. However, I will, I will say this. When I view, when I study the traditional Lutheran perspective on Paul, I have to agree that the new perspective is headed in the right direction. Because the old Paul, if we can label the traditional Paul, old Paul, the old perspective on Paul, wherein um, the Judaisms of the first century are, are characterized as merit the uh, uh um what do we say um characterized by their devotion to torah in a salvific manner that caricature i find that to be an unworkable view of, the, of paul's first century judaisms and therefore in my effort to study the text more accurately not for the sake of of um, elevating the new perspective just because it's new that's not what i'm trying to say I'm simply saying that these, this new perspective is a return to a more accurate view of Paul. So really, it's not necessarily a new perspective on Paul. It's new only in the sense that it's newer to us than the original or older perspective. But in reality, if it turns out that this new perspective is more accurate, then reality, it's the original perspective of Paul. It's the OPP, right? Original Paul perspective, not the new Paul's perspective. So don't misunderstand what I'm trying to say here. But works of law in Paul's writings doesn't have to mean 
works done in obedience to the law for the sake of getting salvation from God. Instead, as we study the rabbinic writings, as we corroborate the details of the of history against the New Testament, against Paul's positive statements on the law that I just mentioned earlier, against the entire body of the Old Testament and the way that Moses describes Torah obedience in the life of a community member of Israel, if we corroborate that view of law against Paul's um, writings, I think what we're going to find is that works of the law is works of law is a it it is a set of actions. It is something that you do. So don't get me wrong, but it the the it more accurately describes this policy, and the policy is a boundary marker. The policy itself. So it's almost as if the first century had this short list of things to do, like let's say they were like a handful. Let's say they were like three things. This short list of three things to do were plucked out of the Torah. And let's let's just suppose, for my example, that these three things were circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and dietary laws. Those three. Okay? Circumcision, Sabbath-keeping, and the keeping of kosher, the dietary laws. Let's take those three and let's pluck them out of the Torah, and let's put them down on a piece of paper. Let's write them down, and we'll seal it, sign it, stamp it, and give it to anyone who wishes to be a member in Israel, a good standing member in Israel. And you have to remember that in the first century, to be included in member, to be included in the membership of Israel was to essentially declare one's corporate salvation. You have to remember that in Judaism, both then and today, 2,000 years ago as well as today, salvation is more of a corporate concept, not so much an individual concept like it is in traditional Christianity and standard church parlance. Salvation is spoken of as an individual idea. You know, you knock on the doors and you ask people one by one, if you were to die today, are you 100% sure that you'd go to heaven? Or, do you, or would you have some doubt? And you begin to walk them through the Romans road or through the four spiritual laws towards putting their personal trust in Jesus. And don't get me wrong, I am not minimizing that approach. I am not minimizing the important need to witness to people. Far from it. However, my point is simply that when you get to Jews, when you encounter Judaism today, which is built on the Judaism of 2,000 years ago, what you're going to find as a Christian is that individual salvation is downplayed and corporate salvation is, is played up instead. Corporate salvation meaning membership to a group, group affiliation, is what seems to matter more to Jews than individual association or individual uh, standing. So many times Jews don't see themselves as individually saved so much as they see themselves corporately saved because they simply belong to the Jewish people by way of ethnicity, by way of family heritage, by way of tradition, etc. So this is also true of Paul's day. So what we have is we have those three 
commandments that I've plucked out of the Torah, as it were, and I, I displaced them and put them on a piece of paper, and I put my little signature on the piece of paper as the, as the community leader, and I roll up this piece of paper and stamp it, and I give this out as policy, and I say, if you want to be in our group, if you want to belong to our group, if you want membership in our group, you must do these three things. So these three things are in fact works, but they are works that come out of the Torah. It's not that I'm asking my members to keep the entire corpus or body of Torah in order to gain group membership. Instead, I'm expecting or asking or imposing these this short list, this small boundary markers as it were. And the way that different groups in the first century differed from one another. For instance, you might have the Pharisaic group saying, if you want to be in our group, if you want to be a Pharisee, then you have to keep these three things to at least get into the group. Once you're in the group, there are more things to do, but the boundary between getting in and staying out is determined by these by the short list. All right, so, so in my little example, you might have, like, say, the Pharisees um, teaching that the short list has five things on it. But then if you cross the street and go over to the Sadducees, you might have a different list, a different short list. You might have ten things. And then if you cross the street and go over to the Essenes, you might have a longer list, like, say, maybe twenty things. And so each of these competing groups within Judaism have their own boundary markers. And the boundary markers are written down on this list and maintained by the leaders of the community. And anyone wishing to get into their group, those respective groups, must adhere to this short list of boundary markers which define the group members over and against the other groups. You get what I'm saying now? This is likely the definition of works of the law. This is particularly how it's used in the four QMMT documents that have recently been discovered. I say recently because within the last 100 years. Recently been discovered and interpreted, which use this very same phrase, albeit in Hebrew. Remember, Paul wrote in Greek, so ergo namu is works of law. But if you translate that back over into, I'm sorry, into Hebrew, you end up with something like ma'asei ha-Torah, works of the law. And so this document from Qumran, uh, you know the 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 the, um, the scrolls, the 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 Qumran cave scrolls that have been discovered. I think they were discovered in the fifties, and then now they're just finally being interpreted here in the eighties and such. Um, they contain this phrase "works of law" in the Hebrew, and they also contain the phrase um, "righteousness," uh, credited as righteous or counted as righteousness. And within this closely reasoned argument, what we find is a contemporary, possibly a contemporary group of Pauls. Um, much older than the, than the earlier um, uh, patristic writings, meaning the, the writings of the, of the fathers, the early church fathers. Uh, <clears throat> what we find is contemporary writings of Paul likely describing the same phenomenon where we have this um, boundary marker, uh, this, this group defining, this, this subgroup defining, this, these competing groups who were um, try, vying for uh, disciples vying for proselytes, vying for membership from the general populace. Um, you remember, you had a kind of a mass of of humanity of of Jewish um, uh, 
Jewish people that didn't really associate with either the Pharisaic or the Sadducean tradition or perhaps with the Qumran tradition or whatnot. Kind of like it's kind of like you have today. You have a, a mass of general Christians who don't necessarily have a membership in a church, and you might have like say a half a dozen pastors representing the different Christian denominations who might present their view or present their membership package to these prospective Christians and say, hey, why don't you join our church? Why don't you join our club? If you'd like to get into our group, here are the group requirements. Here are our bylaws. Here is our membership package, um, membership submission form. Fill out your name. Um, check off that you agree with our statement of faith. Uh, sign your name on the dotted line, and we'll process your application and receive you into our denomination. That's essentially what's going on in the first century, if I can um, anachronistically describe it using today's terms. Works of law in Paul likely is the, the very small list of, of commandments that have been lifted out of the Torah and placed in front of a prospective Jewish person who is already in the covenant of Israel as, as a Jew. His ethnicity and family association got him into the group, into the larger group. But the works of the law is going to help set him apart over and against the other groups that are already Jewish. Get my point? So, in that view, Paul is saying that if you keep these small, short list of requirements of boundary-defining badges in order to get into a group, and if you think that's going to secure your place in this group because you believe theologically that your position in this group is what matters before God, then I'm here to tell you, I'm speaking as if I'm Paul, I'm here to tell you that you're wrong. Getting into the groups is not what's most important. Getting into the family of God via Messiah is what is most important. And there's only one way to get into the family of God, and that is through faith in Christ. That's why Paul comes along and opposes the works of the law as it is set over and against the faith in Christ. So, as we begin to draw question six to a close here, Works of the law is probably not best understood as simplistic merit theology. In other words, Paul is not saying if you try to keep Torah, you won't make it into God's family. The reason I don't believe Paul is, is opposing that view is because the first century Jews likely didn't hold to such a simplistic way of looking at the Torah. Instead, we know that the sectarianism of the first century is recorded for us in these later rabbinic writings. Particularly, we know that the rabbinic Judaism, which survived the destruction of the temple, is, is a product of Pharisaic Judaism. And Pharisaic Judaism described membership into their club in such terms. We also know that the Qumran Jews described membership into their group, into their exclusive group, using the phrase works of the law or ma'ase ha, I'm sorry, uh, uh, ha-Torah, which is the Hebrew counterpart to the Greek ergo namu. So it's more likely that Paul's works of the law 
is a policy that's presented to a Jew in order to get him into a particular party. It's party affiliation. It's a boundary-defining short list of laws. But if you were to take this same short list and present it to a Gentile, okay, in Paul's day, if I were to take this short works of the law list, this boundary-defining policy, and hand it to a Gentile, essentially the first thing the Gentile has to do is become a Jew. That's part of the central feature of belonging to Israel. So for Gentiles, essentially it means you have to convert. And of course, we know that conversion for the purpose of securing your place in the, the eternal coming of God is wrong. It's misuse of conversion. Conversion won't get you in. Conversion won't save you. Conversion to Judaism will simply bring you into the um, natural, um, what we might call the um, uh, earthly covenant of Israel. It will bring you into the limited covenant of Israel, but it won't get you into the um, it won't get you into the eternal covenant. In other words, let me say it this way: God doesn't care whether you're Jewish or Gentile in terms of salvation, right? The ground is level at the foot of the cross. There are no um, favorites within God's family. God doesn't say that Jews are better than Gentiles or that Gentiles are better than Jews. Instead, both are equal sinners. Both are equally in need of the forgiveness and salvation offered only in Yeshua HaMashiach. Right? Amen? That's a good place to say amen. So in closing, as we have used up our hour, I maintain, and we're going to develop this as we go along, this becomes what I call a central hermeneutic foundational um, truth to understanding Paul. Works of the law is bad, but it's not bad because it's describing merit theology, meaning keep the Torah for the purpose of salvation. That's merit theology. It's bad because it describes a boundary-defining policy that equates to Jewish only for Gentiles and uh, a subgroup uh, a subgroup defi- definition for those who are already Jewish. So it's bad because it pl- it allows an individual to place their faith on group affiliation and ethnic identity and the pl- their place that individuals place within a larger group. And that becomes the doorway to salvation, both personally and corporately. Again, we know that Paul is opposed to such a view. In other words, in the traditional reading of Paul, as I conclude, Paul would disagree with merit theology, right? Paul does not think that if you keep the Torah, you'll be saved. So, from a theological argument point of view, if your pastor says says to you, in a kind of a challenging way, to you, the Messianic, who's keeping Torah... If a pastor says to you, so do you think your Torah keeping's earning you browning points before God? Do you think your Torah keeping, your Sabbath keeping, your kosher keeping cause is a way that God's going to accept you into heaven? You must agree with him that, no, I don't think that keeping Torah will save me. I don't think that keeping Torah earns me browning points before God. You have to affirm your agreement with the theological position that the pastor is kind of presenting to you. But you don't want to downplay obedience because God does reward obedience. Even though God doesn't give brownie points, God rewards obedience. 
And obedience is something that is definitely um, championed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, right? But when it comes to works of the law, I believe it's better to understand, it's more theologically and historically, sociologically accurate to understand that it's not, it's not basic merit theology that Paul is combating. It is instead this uh, sectarian view of group membership defined by policies that for Jews mean I'm a, I'm a Pharisee, I'm a Sadducee, I'm an Essene, I'm, I'm, I'm etc. In other words, it defines the different denominations of Judaism, if I can use that term, denominations, like we do in Christianity. And works of law is this policy that, when presented to your standard Greek of Paul's day, would essentially, firstly, chiefly, primarily challenge them to change their ethnicity from Gentile to Jew, and then place them on a path towards keeping the law for the purpose of staying in the group. So, that's where work the law is going to find its better definition among Paul's writings. Again, if this was a lot for you to digest tonight, no problem. Don't worry. Uh, we're going to develop this theme as we work through Paul's writings, and uh, particularly as we work our way down through the book of Galatians. But let me just give you a teaser for next week before I close in prayer. Next week, uh, we'll start with question 7. We'll probably hit question 7 and 8 next week. Question 7 is, doesn't Romans 14 teach that Sabbath-keeping is optional? And question 8 is, explain Colossians 2.16, which is a favorite passage among Christians, uh, those who are seeking to dissuade we Messianics from keeping the Torah. Okay, with that, let me close in prayer. And for those of you who have questions and answers, you're welcome to stay for the 15-minute chat. Um, otherwise, at this point, this is a general dismissal. The recording will stop after the dismissal since I don't record the question and answer session. You're certainly welcome to join us on Tuesday evenings um, from uh, 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time every Tuesday. We'll go for another f uh, six weeks, and then we'll take a break for two weeks, and then we'll go for ten weeks, and we'll take a break for two weeks. And that's the pattern that we're going to be following. Teach for ten weeks take a break for two weeks, teach for 10 weeks, take a break for two weeks. And we're just going to keep going through my 122-page commentary to the book of Galatians until we finish the book, or until we finish the commentary, which could take a few months, could take a year. I'm not going to rush you. I want you to get the information. I want it to set down in you. I want it to challenge you. And, you know, I don't have all the answers. If you have questions, shoot me an email at, at yeshua613 at hotmail.com or visit my one of my two websites. You can go to my congregational website at graftedin.com um, and click on any of the commentaries that are right. Scroll to the very bottom and my email is there. Or you can visit my personal Torah teaching website at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E Torah.com. Click on any commentary, scroll to the bottom. You'll see my email. And shoot me an email if you think that there's something that I missed or something that I didn't cover accurately or that I want to that you want me to go over again, or if you'd like to challenge the new perspective and you are a proponent of the traditional Lutheran view of Paul, the traditional um, reading of Paul, and you have a question about a verse, uh, shoot me an email. Or if you're listening to this podcast and you want to attend the live class, um, shoot me an email and, and ask me about the registration details. There is still room in the live class. There's always room to sign up, and I'd be more than happy to take more students, okay? 
Let's close in prayer. Abba, we bless your name, and I thank you for the opportunity to study right along with the students here tonight. I ask that you will continue to bless us as we press into the text, as we press in, Father, for the purpose of knowing you more fully, as we press in, Father, for the purpose of glorifying Yeshua, our great Messiah. Father, we study in order to do, in order to teach. Father, we want to seek to be pleasing to you. We want to hear you say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We want to be noble Bereans. We want to um, rightly divide the word of truth. We don't want to approach the text with preconceived presuppositions, with our own biases that prevent us from seeing the truth of the text. Help us to study the text so that we can walk away with a better understanding, so that we can be more mature children of God. Thank you for the challenge. Thank you for the responsibility. Father, be with us as a community. Be with our families. Bless us, Lord. Heal us, Lord. Send your spirit within us. Send your spirit to us so that we can glorify the master, so that we can walk in his ways and talk of his ways, so that we can learn of him and glorify him. Thank you, Father, for this awesome responsibility for the opportunity to teach. I thank you for each and every student who was here tonight. I thank you for those who are listening to this recording by way of podcast. Bless them where they're at. Heal them, Lord. Raise them up as lights in their respective circles. Bring us back next week at the appointed time. We will be careful to praise you for all good things. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them, and he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>